Welcome to the TALON project. TALON stands for Teaching and Learning Online Network. As we adjust to the new COVID-19 reality, TALON provides a platform for sharing and discussing resources and practices for remote education. You can learn more at taloncloud.ca. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to another installment of the Talent Voice series. Today I have with me David Thomas. He's the Executive Director of the Online Programs at the University of Denver and an Assistant Professor attendant in the Department of Architecture at the University of Colorado, Denver. His research centers around fun or fun objects as he likes to call it and the meaning of play. And also with me is Lisa Forbes. She's an assistant clinical professor in the counseling program at the University of Colorado, Denver. Lisa is a licensed professional counselor and is training to become a play therapist. And she's obviously interested in play and fun in teaching and learning, but also in mothering practices, gender conformity and mental health. This is what I learned from your official bios. Um, but if you want to say a few more words about yourself and in particular what you're working on at the moment, so what you're up to. Um, David, you want to go first? Sure. Um, as, a, as a guy who's been in the online business for a long time, of course, I'm busy trying to cope with the reality of everyone being online now. So that's been interesting. Um, but in terms of the play work, um, there's different threads of it for me. One thread I've worked on for a long time has been um, how to be more playful at work and in organizations. And so I've been working on that. But really, I think most relevant to online teaching and to this interview is um, the work that Lisa and I have been doing together on this community called Professors at Play, which we'll have to talk about in a moment. But um, it's really intersected in, in surprising and meaningful ways with the whole shift to online learning. And so... Um, but we should talk about that in a minute. I think Lisa should talk about her, yeah. her background next. Um, yeah, so, I mean, your intro kind of summarized everything. Um, play therapy is for kids. It's um, therapy for kids three to 12. And so sometimes when I say play therapy and I also research play and teaching, people think play therapy is about that. And it's very separate. I mean, there's probably some um, common threads there, but um, so the play therapy is, for children. And then I do the research with intensive mothering practices, trying to um, change the um, narratives around motherhood in our culture. Um, and then I'd say David and I met two years ago, probably about this time. Um, and ever since then, we've been trying to meet frequently and talk about play and teaching, fun and teaching. And at first, both of us didn't know what that looked like, how to do that. So over the past two years, we've really been working on um, implementing that in the classroom. I did a research study on my own teaching practices of bringing play into my teaching. Um, I did it this past spring. And um, then this summer, we started Professors at Play in June. And five months later, we have almost what 600 members Gosh. in our community so it's just blown up we've done a lot of things with that um but i'd say the thing i'm like zoned in on and pretty much on a rampage about right now is about play and learning and 
also just kind of challenging the narratives around professionalism um, to, I think rigid professionalism is a problem. And um, so I think playfulness can kind of um, be a nice tool to help us be actually better at our jobs by not being so rigid. So those are some of the things that I'm really working on right now. Okay, thank you. That's um, very insightful. And, and how I found you is through Professors at Play. <laughs> um, I came across the website and um, looked at some of the content. And you said it's an initiative you started a few months ago. Um, was it because of the move to remote teaching and learning or did it just emerge out and came out at that moment? No, it honestly was, didn't have anything to do with the remote teaching at the time. Um, this had been kind of developing over the past year, I'd say. We would come across people who were really interested in fun or really interested in play and learning. So David and I would set up meetings with them and just chat. And then after each of those meetings, we'd say, we should, we should keep connected. Let's see if we can get more people involved and keep the conversation going. And so that's really what it was. We just wanted to start a listserv to have somewhere where we could all keep that conversation happening. Um, and it just so happened that it was during the middle of COVID. And um, I think there's a lot of people that joined professors at play because they were naturally playful or they'd already been doing this in the classroom. But I also think the majority of people joined because they were struggling with this abrupt shift to digital teaching and learning and people were like, I don't, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I don't know how to do this. And so I think it was just a resource for them. So I'm hoping that they came for the resource, but they come hooked on play. <laughs> That's my goal. Yeah, I think we had maybe seven people in March and now, you know, it, it, Lisa wrote an article and it was on the internet and people saw it and they gravitated toward it. And this doesn't surprise me in a way, because I should say that, you know, when Lisa and I met, I was very focused on aesthetics of fun, like how it applied to games. And then I realized that the business community is very interested in being more playful. And even though my professional career was teaching and supporting teachers and this online stuff, when I met with Lisa, she said, so how do you make teaching more playful? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 Those, the streams never cross. Teaching's over here, play's over here. And she's like, no, that's, that's not going to work. I want to know how to, to do more playful teaching. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that, but I'll, I'll go with you. Let's find out. So I think that our adventure together being kind of fearless about like how can play change teaching really was the same story again with professors at play. We just did it because we wanted to stay in touch with some people and then all of a sudden COVID comes along and what COVID did and the online remote teaching and everything did was it created a, a moment in time where there was a crucible of thinking about your teaching. And all of a sudden teaching came to the forefront. All of a sudden professors for the first time in a long time were like wondering, am I engaging my students? And this professors at play thing was kind of like this light that was like, well, we don't know how to do it either, but come join us while we figure it out. And so I think that's really the heart of professors at play is this, this playful intervention to say, yeah, this stuff sucks. Let's have some fun while we figure it out. And that's, that's kind of where we are right now. And a lot of research, a lot of experience, a lot of stuff that we have mastered. I don't want to sell us short, but the professors at play thing really is just a, a project of just of pure joy. Yep. You want to say a bit more about it at the moment, what it consists of. So people who are not familiar with it. So, so what's there at the moment? It's kind of, 
picked up quickly. I imagine like a tiny snowball at the top of a hill, just rolling downhill, picking up all this snow. It's this huge, massive thing now. I mean, compared to five months ago. So we started with a listserv. We have about 600 people on our listserv. And then David and I thought, well, if we have all these people, we got to do something. So why don't we hold a virtual playposium? So we held that in November and we had 361 people register for that. And then, um, oh, before that, we started a web, the website that you went to. And so we have a blog there, we have resource page. Um, and then right before the playposium, someone said, what's the hashtag for the playposium for social media? And we're like, we don't have social media. So then we're like, okay, we ha gotta have social media. So we have Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, and then we recorded all of our sessions at the Playposium. So then we had to have a YouTube channel. So now we have that. So it's just kind of like the next step just kind of unfolds without us really planning it. It's just the next right thing to do and we create it. Um, so I don't know if you have more to say about what it is now, David. Yeah, I think so now. Um, there's been some demand for additional speakers. So we're actually starting, we'll wait to the beginning of the year, but we'll program ongoing kind of workshops and talks to kind of help people keep going. Um, now we're starting to realize there's all these, these like affiliate organizations. So we had, you know, connected with Alison James out in the UK and all her work and the, the strong museum of play, but now we're finding other associations of play and other researchers. And so I think what we're doing now is we're trying to build a bigger network so that, you know, a we're, we're additive and not just duplicative of things that are going on. And I think, you know, there always the question is, when's the next playposium? It's kind of a question because we will definitely do another playposium. The question is whether it will be an online, but hopefully it'll be a face-to-face -face one. And, you know, you know, already the folks at the Strong are like, hey, you should come have your playposium at the Strong Museum of Play. And we're like, we would love to do that. So really, I think when Lisa says it's a snowball, it's the snowball is not even halfway down the hill. It's, it's just still gathering speed. And now I'm a little bit curious to hear, um, how do you bring play and fun into your own practice? So, so people wondering, how, how do you do it um, yourself? I'm not sure if you're both teaching at the moment, but. I, I talked this summer, I'm not teaching. Yeah, she's, yeah. <laughs> she's the tip of the spear here of these interventions, so. Um, so it's kind of a complicated answer, I would say, because there's play as an activity. So you could do a game in class, you could do a playful activity to teach a concept, but then there's just playfulness, like underlying playfulness. Um, and I think that's just kind of a way of being more so, presenting yourself, um, reducing the hierarchy between faculty and students, making it more of a safe learning environment where their stress is reduced, like there's a whole bunch that goes into that. So I think it's multi-layered. Um, and I think part of play can be like icebreakers. So you can do, I call them connection formers because I don't like the word icebreakers. I think it has like a negative connotation. Um, so I call them connection formers because that's what they do. They connect people and they reduce stress. So I think what I do is at the start of almost every class, I'll do some type of fun activity um, that really has no connection to the content. The whole purpose is just to get people kind of in the learning space, forgetting about their stressful day, connecting with each other, 
Um, and in my study, the students said that reduced their stress. Um, it was like self-care. They felt like they were centered and they could actually approach the heavy topics better because they had that moment of levity. So I think that's one way of being playful, but has no relation to the content at all. So I think faculty often miss, miss that step because they're like, well, why would I do that? We're, that's not connected to the learning. I have these learning objectives to hit. And I think that's a, um, an unfortunate thing because I saw from my study how impactful those things, even if they're not directed, directly related to content, can have on the learning process that comes after that. Um, and then I think there's um, play that you can design within your class to teach the content. And so maybe it's a playful discussion or maybe it's um, a game that you've created to really um, teach that content for that day. Um, and then in our playposium, we had um, one faculty, Robert, Roberto Corrado, is that how you yeah, say yeah. that? Corrado, yeah. Oh, Corrado, he's a law professor and he does this entire course play where he has the students read um, Jurassic Park and they're law students. And so they have to come up with um, laws basically and strategy for protecting, um, what is it? Extinct animal parks. Extinct animal parks. And it's just yeah. like genius. And that goes across the span of the entire course. So I think there's like little things you can do. There's larger things you can do. Um, so I think it's kind of a complicated type of answer, but that's kind of how I conceptualize it. And I think one thing Lisa said that, that I think some people naturally embody it, but sometimes people miss is that the professor themselves needs to be playful, right? And there's just different ways of being playful. I mean, you know, we've all been through the whole thing of like, establish your social presence at the beginning of class and show a picture of your dog, and then it's all business. And I think that the professors that we connect with the most have a natural kind of playfulness. They, they invite the students to engage with them. And that really is play, even though it's not like we think of play. It is a play. It's like a play in the, in the classroom. Um, and I know that well before Lisa and I started working on this, as I reflect back, I've always been a playful professor. And some of that's just my nature and who I am. Some of that's my, my gender and my privilege. You know, it's just easy for me to be like, hey, I could be a little looser than, than my students because they're younger than I am and I'm an old white guy. Um, but what got interesting to me is that, that there's, a, there's a baseline. You have to enter the classroom with the playfulness. Then the techniques really start to pay off. I think sometimes if you divorce the techniques from the, the playfulness, it's, it really does kind of feel like forced fun, right? Like, like, why are we doing this? It's like you, you, you do these Jeopardy games and then, you know, the rest of class is stressful. It's like, you know, the, the, the Jeopardy game isn't inherently going to unlock playfulness in your class. Your, your approach to, I think, your, your what does it say, your mindset? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I teach mental health counseling and, Long story short, there's um, this research called the common factors research. And it basically says like, well, there's 500 different counseling theories and more than that really. And how come it doesn't really matter which one you use? Therapy can be still effective no matter what approach you use. So what is it that makes therapy effective? And common factors research found that the most influential factor to successful therapy is the strength of the therapeutic relationship and so I think it's the same thing in teaching. It's if you have a strong relationship with your students, 
the techniques and the tools are going to be much more effective because that relationship is there. So I think it kind of talks, speaks to what David was saying about that playfulness. If you have play without playfulness, I think there's a disconnect and students don't um, grasp onto that. And I, I don't know quite where you want the conversation to go, but this is where I have to set Lisa up and say, she has, I think, a very elegant kind of observational model of how play unlocks in these levels. And I'd love for her to share it because when she structured what she was doing in this model, all of a sudden I went, oh, play's not just like the, the you know, sugar helps the medicine go down. Play is fundamental to these human practices. So you got Lisa. Um, are you talking about the model that I created? Yeah, the community, you know, the community vulnerability connection. Oh, well, that's safety. kind of like a simplistic form model. of it, yeah. though. So but it's great. I love it. I think <laughs> what David's talking about is before I started my research project, I had this theory of how play was meaningful in the class environment, where if you played and had fun, then people started laughing and connecting and creating that bond and community. And when there's a sense of community and connection, people are gonna be more comfortable and more likely to be willing to be vulnerable. And when we're more likely to be willing to be vulnerable, we're more likely to take risks. And when we're more likely to take risks, we're more likely to fail and failing leads to longer lasting learning. So that was kind of the model I had worked up in my head, um, which my research found that it's just my research, the model I um, designed out of my research is just more complex. Um, so I have a visual for that because it's hard to explain kind of verbally, but that's the gist of it. For people it's, it's, listening or watching in, and interested, is it somewhere up on the Professors at Play website or can, we, can they find it somewhere if they want to into it? Um, it's not up there yet. Um, we could put it up. I could screen share it now, or we could put it up on the website. You want to screen share it now if you have it? Or is that a sure. bit? It said, um, I'm you out there. <laughs> I can't share. I just need to enable it for you so you can. So I guess just to keep it clear, you know, Lisa has this this theoretical model, which I love because I think it's just so good at describing things. And then she's got the research model, the model that actually came out of the research, the more complex model. But either way you look at it, what I love about it is it gets people away from the idea that play is just this little drop of delight that you drop into some otherwise painful process, right? And instead it says, no, this is a healing practice, right? It's like, this is how people connect in human bonds. And through those bonds of community, then they're willing to risk and explore and think and engage. And I'm like, why didn't someone tell me that a long time ago, right? Because we were just like, well, play, you know, it's, it's what you do when you're done working. Instead of being like, no, the world is very complicated and, and, and being able to play with things is actually a, a mode of inquiry. It's a very human mode of inquiry and understanding. And it's just, it's motivating on the inside. And so the work that Lisa's done to really bring that to bear in a, and I think that kind of a, a psychological language 
has really enlivened all the work that I've done, which has really been more about aesthetics, about how does it look? How does it work? How do you recognize it? How do you talk about it? So I, I always sort of joke that it's just like, you know, I've been in my head about this scholarship of fun and play. And then you have to, you have to bring a counselor into it to find the heart and say like, it's not just about these ideas, it's about people and how they, they, they relate to each other. So it's been a wonderful, you know, uh, symmetry of, of how our approaches have worked together. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, here's kind of what I visualized after I heard everything my students said. It was a qualitative study, so it was a lot of um, their experiences of play. So it starts over here with playfulness and play, which I talked about laughter, fun, novelty, excitement, um, and it removes barriers. So it reduces their stress, their anxiety, their fear. Um, it puts them in that centered place to learn and approach the seriousness from a more centered place. And at the same time, it creates those relationships and that belonging, which I call like relational safety, because um, it creates trust. Um, and then from there, then it awakens intrinsic motivation, where students said um, they were more focused on the learning process instead of grades, like they normally are. They actually enjoyed coming to class. They enjoyed the challenge. Class felt intriguing and exciting and energetic, and they just felt more motivated to learn. Um, so that was like huge to hear that, because that's like everything I always have tried to get from my students. Um, and then from there, it's like this vulnerable engagement where they're highly engaged, it's hands-on, it's interactive. I don't lecture at people very often. Um, and so within that, people are doing things, trying things, taking risks. They're open to feedback. And it, the, this open to feedback relates back to this relational safety. Because if you have a strong relationship with your students, you can give them just about any feedback and they're more likely to be able to hear it. Um, and from there, learning is enhanced. Um, and so I think when I first started this journey, I thought, okay, I'm gonna make class more fun and playful and it's gonna create better learning outcomes. And I didn't realize all this in the middle, these four, four steps in the middle. I think I wasn't quite sure how those connected. Um, so that's kind of the visual that I've been, that keeps me going when, I mean, play is hard to do. And my experience is people don't take it seriously a lot of times. Um, and sometimes I'll get some slack for it. And so when I look back at that model, I'm like, no, this works. I'm going to keep, keep on because I know that students, it really matters to them. And so back to the professors. Oh, good. Sorry. Yeah, if you think now about, you know, most of us teaching and learning remotely, would you say it's something that's now harder to do? Would you say, you know, play to bring playful or playful practice into the classroom is, is, is easier? Or do, would you say both is challenging to do, or, um, but worthwhile to do? Or, or do you think there is, what is your experience with, with now being online? Um, I think actually being online and digital has actually opened up more opportunities for play. Like in terms of creatively thinking of playful approaches, I ex totally expanded on that and I didn't think that I was gonna be able to. But it's like before when I was teaching in person, I was confined to the walls of the classroom and the perimeter of the university, where now teaching digitally, 
I have the physical environment of each student's home, like they can get up and move and get things. And I also have access to the entire web. Whereas in in-person classes, I can't assume every student has a laptop with them, access to the internet. So I can't really use that. But here, when we're learning digitally, all students are on um, the internet. So it kind of expanded in that way. I'd say it's more challenging because it's harder for interpersonal connections. And so I think it's digitally teaching play is even more important than in-person learning. It's more important, but it's harder because it's harder to connect through a computer screen, obviously. Um, so I think there are some limitations just to the model I showed you in terms of the deep level of connection. I don't know that I'm getting as deep of a sense of belonging in my on 100% digital classes than I was in in-person classes. But my students have classes where there's no play and it's lecture over Zoom. Um, and that's hard, I think. So I think it's absolutely important but I think it is harder digitally. I, what I would add on there is I think that when we moved to online and not so much the teachers are already teaching online that had kind of built their courses for online, but the remote teaching, I think what happened was it ripped away the veil of uh, I'm a good teacher. It really, we were pretty naked in Zoom because, you know, I can talk in a classroom and I can feel like I'm doing pretty good. You know, I can keep people's attention. But in Zoom, I'm basically a radio DJ. I'm talking to the screen, right? There's no feedback. And I think because of that, I think this put teachers in the state of shock that they weren't as engaging as they thought they were. And I'll tell you something else is that I think in a classroom, say, of 30 students, if I can engage half the class, I'm going to feel like the class is engaged, right? But if I'm online and I'm only engaging half the class, I'm looking at 15 Zoom cameras turned off, you know. And so I think it's just like all of a sudden we can see the absence that's always been there. Now, now th there's also the truth that if I can get the class to laugh, everyone benefits from the laughter, right? It just it kind of raises the mood of everyone. And then online, if I've got 30 people laughing independently with their microphones off, everyone's isolated. So I agree with Lisa. It's simultaneously um easier and harder in just different ways and the last thing i would add and i think this is where i wanted to tie some of this back to professors at play was um i think we just don't know how to do this online thing i don't think students know how i don't think we know i think we're still inventing and i think that's why people started flocking to professors at play because at least there were people offering methodologies for engaging students crazy icebreakers escape rooms you know funny quiz shows you know full class simulations and all of a sudden they were like well shoot if i'm going to be trapped in this little zoom box i might as well try some of this stuff so i think it's an exciting time to be doing this and i, and I don't know that that playfulness would have been as present in people's minds if they were just doing the same old class telling the same old jokes same old activities and i think another piece to that is i don't want to make assumptions but i i think it's common that faculty have perfected their classes that they've taught in person over decades sometimes um, and maybe do tweaks here and there but it's generally they have it down so i think moving to online and digital teaching they 
completely had to shift what they had been doing for so long. So for me personally, I found it as an opportunity to just try some things differently, shake it up, you know, step outside the box a little bit because I was having to redo everything anyway to put it online synchronous and asynchronously. So I think it was a huge opportunity if people took the opportunity to just kind of do something different and expand. So I think hopefully people are seeing that play is a way to do that. And I want to emphasize again that, you know, we're in this. So it's not like we're above this. It's not like we figured this out. We've just committed ourselves to playing through this mess, right? And um, like this summer, I taught an architecture class and it was normally a hybrid class and it was fully online. And I found myself facing some of these same struggles. Like I'm, I'm really entertaining in a classroom. And then like, wait a minute, I know how to teach online. And I was doing a lot of things wrong. And Lisa's always in the background going, you should do more of these wacky things. You should do more of these fun things. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to, but I've got international students and, you know, architects are, this architecture students are a pretty serious bunch. And, you know, and at the end of the whole thing, I did a lot of fun stuff. And by the way, I should tell you, the class was the architecture of fun. So it's a ringer, right? Like my class is going to be fun because of its subject matter. But, um, but at the end of it, I'm reading through the, the course, you know, feedback. And it's just like, we love the wacky activities. We wish there would have been more of them. So I kind of learned my lesson, which was like, I wasn't brave enough, you know? Or just I, listen to Lisa. Yeah, that's, <laughs> we could also just say that. I should just listen to Lisa. So. <laughs> um, on, on, on that note, um, is there favorites you like to use? Or are things, you, tools you, you, you really think they work quite well? Or where you could imagine they work also for other people well? Do you have some favorites? Activities um, maybe or also you know tools you you like to work with or even so i found for the um the connection former type activities at the start of class if you just like google free computer games there's a bunch of ideas there's one have you seen flappy birds it's <laughs> it's a um free computer game and it's totally pointless. It's just this little bird and you press the space bar and there's like these breaks in the pipes and you have to get the bird to fly through the pipes. And it's really hard to do. Most people can't get past like level one or two. Um, so I'll just send the students in the chat box a link to that website and I'll say, open this up. You have three minutes. Whoever gets the highest score at the end of three minutes wins. And it's totally just for relaxation and fun and play. Um, and I have them unmute themselves if they um, are okay with that. And just like the laughter that comes from that is just so heartwarming. Um, there's this other one, David found a website and it's, I can't remember the name of it, but it has like, has to be thousands of questions and you just scroll for minutes. And so I call it scrolly questions. So I'll send the students in breakout rooms little small group breakout rooms and give them the link. And I'll say one person share your screen and be the scroller and then take turns and the person starts scrolling. And then whoever's turn it is say stop randomly. And then wherever the screen lands and the little cursor lands on a question, you read the question and you have to answer it. Um, and then just take turns answering questions. And it seems goofy, but I go around between breakout rooms and it, it is like, 
the most um, connecting conversations that I've heard in a classroom situation because normally our icebreaker questions are you know, kind of surface level, but these are such random questions that it gets into these facets of students' lives that would never have come out in a classroom otherwise. So just things like that, or um, what are some other ones we've tried, David? Um, I, I like like breakout rooms with kind of like these weird objectives. Like I would send people into a breakout room and say, don't come back until you've found something you all don't, all agree that you don't like, you know? It's just this weird conversation that they have, you know, instead of like saying, hey, talk about your favorite place to go for vacation. They come back and they're like, none of us like tomatoes. I'm like, who knew, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just, it humanizes people. But you're asking about tools. And I think that what's interesting is I think that play transcends the tools. I think, you know, I was going to say my favorite tool is Zoom, you know, it's just turn your camera on, do something. Mm -hmm. Like when Lisa does the Flappy Birds thing, I, I use that one too. There's prizes but you can't win a prize if you don't play with your camera on. So everyone turns their cameras on while they're playing this stupid game and you can just see them laughing, you know? And so the people that don't have their cameras on are feeling really left out. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, um, mainly I use Zoom because I think you can get better interaction within that. At least that's what I found. I'm sure other people have found other ways that I just don't know about. Um, but within Zoom, I think you can, like I said, bringing in links, posting links in the chat box, and then they're off into a different, you know, cyberspace world within Zoom. So it's like constantly changing um, virtual environments so they're not doing one thing for too long. So I think that's useful. And then within that, you can use Google Docs. Within that, you can use um, Flipgrid. Within that, you can use um, Google Forms. I create escape rooms through Google Forms. So I'll send them to smaller group breakout rooms and give them the link to the escape room. And they have to break through all the locks in order to re-enter the main classroom. And at the la if they break the final lock, there's like um, a secret passcode to get back in the main Zoom room. So I think it's, to me, it's less about using a bunch of different tools and more about just creating that connection and being creative within Zoom. There's so much you can do that I had no idea about five, six months ago. And it's just really trying things, breaking, breaking the norm and breaking the status quo of what teaching was in my mind and just doing it differently and seeing what works. Sounds interesting. I especially like the idea you need the code to come back to class <laughs> yeah. so it becomes a desirable place or space to be. So that sounds yeah. like reversing totally. the idea rather than you have to be with me in the class. You need to work hard to actually come back with me. <laughs> yeah. And then it's so funny because um, the secret code I had for the last one I did was bananas. And so groups will be coming back and there's a winner that comes in and we're just waiting for the last group and they finally come back and you know when people are connecting to zoom and their camera comes up and then it says the audio is connecting so you can see people coming back and then they go bananas and they're like oh because they realize they were the last ones <laughs> so fun sounds 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 a good idea of how to how to integrate that um where do you get your inspiration from for things like this, do you 
read a lot? Do you talk to other people a lot? I mean, with the place symposium you had, I assume you got lots of ideas there. So where do you draw up from? I would say all of that. Um, I'm like, I told you I'm on a rampage. So I've, I'm like surrounded by a bunch of playbooks that I've ordered. Um, by a bunch of different authors and I'm just reading as much as I can, reading articles. Um, the professors at Play Community has been really inspiring, especially our Playposium. I was like, by the end of that day, I was like so overwhelmed with just amazing playful ideas that I need to go back through the videos because it was just like so much. Um, and so just connecting with certain people here and there who have a different angle on play because play means so many different things. So just getting to talk to people is another thing. Um, and then I've, I think my whole life, I've always really hated traditions and hated normal and hated status quo. And so when I get to break the rules a little bit, it feels really invigorating for me. So I think there's like this internal sense of um, inspiration that comes when I just get to bend the normal teaching practices, at least that I've been taught and modeled. Um, and I'd say for sure, David has been a huge inspiration for me as well. I, when I first even knew that this was a possibility, I went to one of his workshops on um, like wacky workplaces or play in yeah, yeah. higher ed. So he's been really a guiding light in this for me. So it's been nice to have him by my side. Yeah, I, I mean, my answer is almost identical to Lisa's. I mean, I've, I've been an academic researcher of fun for a long time. My, my colleague, John Sharp at NYU, or not NYU, he's at Parsons, and I wrote a book about the aesthetics of fun. And, you know, I, I've been really heady about this stuff. But then watching Lisa teach these classes and just watching the students just explode with delight. I all of a sudden was just like, I, I, for the longest time, I'm like, this is interesting to me. Like, I love idiosyncratic architecture. I love weird stuff. I just was like very removed from it. And my joke in, in all these talks is always like, my wife would say, how can you be the professor of fun? You're the least fun guy I know. I say, oh, I don't like to have fun. I just like to think about it. But did the professors at play work and working with Lisa, watching people come alive through play, all of a sudden it was just like, wait, this thing that I know a lot about matters. And, and, you know, and so it's been really wonderful. And I think, you know, at the heart of it, I, I agree with Lisa. It's like, you know, we have built this energy between us that says, this is okay. This is good. This is awesome. Look at the things that it's done. And I think that's what professors at play is. Cause I, I agree a hundred percent watching all the presenters from all over the world present. I'm like, this is so great. Why don't more people do this? We got to get more people talking to us. So every time I meet someone that's doing something, making it work, I just get more excited to keep trying and keep doing more. So, and, and you know, there's, there's lots of books. It's just, the thing is, there's not a book. There's not the book that you read. There's lots of theory. There's lots of practice. There's all the gamification stuff, you know, there's just all that. There's just so much out there, but it's not in a curriculum yet. So it's hard to find. And I think that's the other component of professors at play that we work really hard on, which is to try to point people to things like, Hey, here's this random book from game studies, you know, Miguel Sicart's writing about ethics of play. But if you read the book, it's so relevant to teaching with play. Oh, here's Stuart Brown, this guy that writes about why playfulness is important to a, a, a happy life. 
well, read that book too, because it's about teaching it, you know? And so I think that we're starting to just find all these, these common threads and trying to put them in a place for people to be able to use them. And I think for me, it's been really the community because when I first saw David talk and then him and I started talking and then we found random people here or there that were interested in it. At times I felt like we were the only people into this because a lot of faculty I know, um, I'm not sure, I don't know how they teach, but when I talk about play and teaching, sometimes I feel like, oh, that's cute. So then I started to like keep it to myself and not tell people what I was doing in the classroom, just do it. Um, and so meeting David, it was like, I was given permission to play. Um, and then this community, every time I talk to somebody in the community or go to a workshop or the playposium, it's just like gives me more um, fire behind that because it's like, yes, we're a community. There are people doing this. There are people have been doing this all along. I just had no idea. And there's, there's just pouches of people everywhere. So it's, that's inspiring to me that the community is getting bigger and bigger. And I'd go back too, to this, the student response, and the student feedback. I mean, when you see students like all lit up and, and they're thanking you for teaching and you're like, WTF, like, why haven't I been doing that? Then, then I think that you get inspiration from success, you know, then you get hungry. You're like, I want to do more of this, you know? So on, on that note, um, where do you, two questions in one, where do you think higher education is going and where do you hope it shall be going, <laughs> which, which may or may not be the same thing? I feel like I'm always answering first. You want me to go? Well, here's yeah. the thing. I, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about the future of higher ed because in a certain sense, that's what I'm part of is like, you know, this online stuff. I think the future of higher ed is going to be a lot, a lot more technologically mediated. I think a lot more networked. I think that the era of the closed classroom and the professor as the expert has been coming to a close. And I think it has been hastened by COVID. I, I think that students are going to become, they're, they're, they've been empowered in a certain sense. So I think that the role of the professor is going to have to change. And, and, I, I think that, that whether you like the word play or not, I always say play has these two connotations in English. On one hand, it's like child's play, like goofing around. On the other hand, it's like mechanical play where there's a sort of looseness. And really the word means both things. It means moving things around and seeing how they fit together. And, and I think that professors are being forced into a playful pose because students are like, I can look up a lecture. I don't need to sit here and listen to you lecture to me. I want you to help me play with these ideas and put them together and learn the practice of, you know, of thinking the way you do. So I think the future of higher ed because of COVID is actually going in that direction. And in a certain sense, I'm kind of hopeful that that will happen as well. Um, there's another line of, of, of conversation here that, that it could be very, very deep, but I also think because of what's happening with COVID and I think that play is really reflective of this is play upturns hierarchy, right? And, and higher ed's built on hierarchy. Who knows the most, what your school ranking is, you know, how, what your GPA is. And I think that COVID's upturning things. And I think playfulness is a response. 
And I think, you know, like when we talk about decolonizing the curriculum or we start talking about racial justice, I think when we start talking about all these things, I don't think higher ed's ready for this. I think it wants to be ready for it, but I think it's not ready for this. And so I think that something really weird is going to happen. And I don't know what that is, but I am pretty convinced of that kind of idea of the fool who doesn't know the danger and just marches through all the chaos may be the emblem that we need. And that's what I'm hopeful for. I'm hopeful that we can play ourselves out of this mess. So. Um, I think the obvious answer is it's going to become more digital. Um, I think it's been headed that way. And I think with COVID, definitely it's probably advanced in that the stages of that. Um, I, what I think is going to happen is in 10 years, not much will be different. Maybe it'll be more digital, but in terms of like the hierarchy, the status quo, what a faculty member is, you know, I think those things are going to probably stay the same. That's just the skepticism in me. Um, but I was doing some reading for one of the manuscripts I'm writing up right now. And there's a couple sources that talk about um, pedagogy, this hierarchical, listen to me, lecture-based approach is like 500 years old. And there's research more recently that says, hey, that's not the most effective way to teach. But at the same time, faculty sometimes struggle to adopt a more playful or more um, hands-on or engaging style. And I think it's because we are so used to teaching in this lecture-based format. I mean, my training, all of my years in undergrad and my graduate programs, that was how I was taught. And so now as a faculty member, I think sometimes it's easy to just do what was modeled to you. Um, and I think it's hard for people to think outside the box. I wrote one of our blog posts on our website that said academia killed my creativity because I think you're just kind of recruited into this traditional way of thinking and being in this status quo. And I think it's really hard to do something outside of that one because our creativity mind is shriveled. Um, but also I think it's scary to do something new and different because you can get a lot of criticism for that, like doing playful things. People say play is trivial, play is a waste of time. Um, my class is too serious for play. There's a lot of um, skepticism about play. So if you do it, it's kind of a risk. And I think it takes a lot of energy to put, um, uh, rethink teaching in that way. And the other thing I disagree with David a little bit about is he said students want this more playful approach. I agree partly, but also some of my students said, I asked them at the very start of the semester, um, you know, what are your thoughts about play and teaching and learning? And they said, well, I don't know how that's going to work because how are you going to get a bunch of grad students to get up and move around the classroom? And one student said, I'm not really looking forward to it because I just want to sit there. The lazy student in me just wants to sit there and listen to a lecture and take notes. And that same student then said, but I don't learn very well that way. And I know that about myself. So I know that playful learning will probably be better. So I think that student was just saying, my brain is so conditioned to be lectured at, and that's what we think teaching is, that sometimes students will push back against that because they're just like, I think of like neuroplasticity. 
like what you do every day creates strong neural pathways in your brain. And so if you're lectured at for decades, not centuries, decades, um, that's the way that you feel the most comfortable learning. So of course, when a faculty member stops lecturing and uses play, you're going to be like, wait, what? I don't, this is weird to me. Where's the rubric? What, what, are, what, what do I write down for my notes? So I think it's like a little bit of faculty being recruited into teaching a certain way. And I think it's also pressures from students. Like they just want to take their notes and take a test and leave sometimes. I think maybe it's just because they're used to it. So long story, I think um, higher ed in 10 years, I hope will be really playful and a space where faculty have more time to be innovative and creative and be more playful in their approaches and just do something different. And I don't think, I don't think it's wise to maintain status quo over 500 years, like things change. The students were teaching to change. Um, so I'm hopeful that it'll look different. I just worry that the status quo and going against that is going to be a little too much and we won't. I mean, one other thing I'd add to that is if you think about 10 years, so, so the iPhone was released 13 years ago. I mean, the world is different with smartphones. It's just different. I mean, and you can think of all the different ways that it is different. And I think that that really COVID may have been that moment in higher ed. I think higher ed is different now. I just don't think that we realize it yet. Like we're living in the future and it's gonna take us a while to realize that. And, and you know, some, some parts of the university world are gonna die fighting for the old way, but I think it's, I think it's already different. And I'll give you a quick example. Like um, we have a, a pretty uh, uh, respected uh, music school, right? Of all things, what can you not teach online, right? Music. Well, they found out that their opera singers could train with metropolitan opera singers in New York City because the opera singers were not busy doing opera, so they had time. And so, you know, these music professors now are already thinking, well, of course I want to get back into the, you know, the studio. I want to work with people in person, but boy, I got to hang on to this online stuff. And I find that so exciting because I think, wait, the future's already here. Like, like one year ago, that was impossible. And now that's just the way things are going to be. So I'm, I'm mostly pretty positive and excited about this. But I do maintain that, that play has an important component in all of this. Um, as a final question, what, what word of advice would you then give to those that now think, maybe I should look into play <laughs> in whatever way for my teaching or at least change up my teaching a little bit. So what, what would be your advice? How to, how to start off? I would say, I think my big soapbox, so I'm a mental health counselor. And so I think you can give somebody all the tools in the world, all the resources in the world. And sometimes, that won't help because there's always an underlying issue or barrier that keeps people from being able to access those things or seeing the usefulness in those things. So I think my advice would be take some time to reflect on the narratives of higher education, um, the narratives of what being a faculty member means to you, um, like what basically, what is the status quo that we are upholding? And how's that working? And which, what part of that can you change? 
And so when I did that for myself, I realized that the traditional form of teaching of lecture based, you know, hierarchical, I'm the expert standing here telling you all the facts is not working for me. It was draining me. It was leaving me feeling disillusioned about teaching and higher ed. Um, and so once I was able to see like, that's one narrative of teaching, it might work really well for some people, maybe I'm just not that good at lecturing. Um, but I need to create my own narrative. And what works for me is more in line with who I am as a human. And that's just being more free and playful and not so not taking myself so seriously, because I have a hard time doing that. Um, so I think it's kind of deconstructing these dominant narratives that have been taught to us for you know generations and choosing for yourself which direction you want to go and then i think it's you know once you get into play figuring out what that means in the classroom how does that look for me because how it looks for me is different than it looks for david and you know everyone so i think it's like personalizing play and then i think i think of it on like a continuum of not trying it at all or like going way too far and so kind of where can you take one little tiny step with play. Maybe it's doing an icebreaker and seeing how that works. Maybe it's, you know, making a game and seeing how that works. So I think it's taking tiny steps because it can feel daunting and overwhelming. I think if you're like, I have to be this playful faculty who has play in every class, I think it's a process. So that's a long answer, but I would just say everybody go to therapy and talk about how <laughs> the barriers that keep you from, you know, being playful and maybe taking yourself too seriously. My answer is similar. I, you know, one of the things that um, I've been looking at for a while and, and now Lisa and I are looking at with teaching is I call it the fun wall. She just calls it shame, but it's like, you know, people have that experience where it's like, you know, you want to do karaoke, but you're afraid to do it. And your friends finally get you up there and you do the song and you're like, wow, that was really fun. And people tend to be that way. They have this shame that they're going to look stupid or they're going to, you know, mess up or they're not going to be any good. And it's double down with professors, right? There's no room for error. I am the, the master of my domain. And so I think that, you know, for anyone that wants to become more playful in their teaching and unlock some of this, um, you got to get over that wall. And, and, you know, for some people, just telling them the wall exists, they'll just plow through it, you know, because they're stubborn. But I think most people need something. So like Lisa says, one thing is pick something easy. You know, if you've never done anything before, sure, do the dumb Jeopardy game. It's like the lowest form of, of play in the classroom. But if that gets you started, do that. I'd say go find a buddy, find someone that, you know, in your discipline or even not in your discipline, that's just going to egg you on or, you know, go to things like go, like I tell you what, one of the best parts of the play posium was watching people that I knew had never done any of these things just get so excited watching someone say, well, I teach my whole class like this. And you could just see the, the key unlock, like, well, if they can do it, I can do it, you know? And so I, I think that a lot of it's just modeling and exposure, but, but at the end of the day, I think it's just going out to do it. And I think it's gotten doubly hard because, you know, in a way we've gotten used to Zoom. Here's the links, here's the syllabus, here's the lecture. I think it also might start with doing something to break yourself out of complacency. Um, I have another friend who's nothing to do with teaching. He's a this crazy guy that does all these wonderful, weird events and stuff. And he and I were talking about the fact that we should write a book called prank yourself, you know, kind of like 
just do things that make your life more weird and complicated just to, to break you out of complacency. So I would also say, I think that if nothing else, even if you're not going to do it in your classroom, start pranking yourself. You know, I mean, here, here's, here's a technique, right? Every day before you go to class, Zoom or whatever, pick a random word out of the dictionary and you have to figure out how to work that word into your lecture. Just do it for yourself. If you're a little more brave, tell the class you're doing it and see if they can figure out what the word is. That's I think a nice that's... ending, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now we, we can look out for these lectures and these random words and can see if in anyone we can spot one. Um, can I just add one more thing real quick? Um, I think um, sometimes it's getting over that fear like we're talking about and I mean, I still get nervous to do playful things. And the first time I really tried something um, very different, uh, I it was a game where I had questions on these little um, post-it notes and I put them down on the table. This was in person before COVID. And I gave each of the students, you know, those sticky hands, they're like kids, like gooey, and then it has a hand and you can like fling them. So I gave each of them one of those and they'd have to come up to the front of the class and it was an intro. So it was like, what's your name? What track are you in? Um, and then slap a card and then whatever card flings back at you, you have to answer. And it was like, it's the most hilarious game. But the first time I did it, my hands were shaking because I was so nervous and like, this is, this is not going to go well. And then I remember David in the back of my head. I'm like, he's going to ask me how it went after class. I have to do it. And so I did it. And I think so each time it's going to feel uncomfortable, but just kind of have that courage, take some risks um, and then have that person who's going to be your accountability partner. Um, Cause it, it is scary. It's hard. I mean, we, I think we talk about it now as like, do it. It's great. It's fun. But I think we even sometimes struggle to have the courage to do it. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, David, um, for the Thank conversation. <laughs> I think there is lots more to follow up, and I think we maybe should do that. Um, very interesting to hear what you're what you're doing, but also, um, you know, how we can change our own practice as we go along and make it more useful, more interesting, more fun, and hopefully also more. Um, how shall I say, advanced for students so they can progress with their own learning. So thank you very much for that conversation. This episode was produced by Talon. You can find the video of the interview and more at taloncloud.ca. The Talon project is funded by the Richard Parker Initiative. It is hosted at the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape at the University of Calgary. Thank you for listening.